Why don't we uh, pray just before we come back to that passage? Give you a chance to turn that up again as well, to follow that along. Father God, we thank you for the truth of those words that we've just sung. Sometimes it's easy to sing these songs and and for the depth of, of those words not to hit us as fully as it should, but the wonder that it is that you are a good, good father to us. And Lord, we thank you for this book that reveals you as a good, good father to us, that comes as a message that challenges all of the world around us, and that reveals you as a good father who makes all things new, where we have brought disorder and decay and distress, you bring order and peace and grace. And Lord, we thank you for how in this book, maybe above all other books, we see that clearest. We see the depths of our need and the depths of your love. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we just ask that you would help us to see you for all that you are. And then to see ourselves for all that you've made us to be well we pray that this might be a, a series and an adventure through this book that might be life-changing for us even for the amount of times we may have heard it before i pray that lord your grace would work within us again i pray amen if you turn that passage up there you'll find it uh, really helpful to try to uh, follow along with what paul's saying here you may have already noticed, even from those first seven verses, but that Paul manages to pack an awful lot in, even into an introduction. It wouldn't normally be that you'd sort of, I'd want to spend a, a sermon just on an introduction, but Romans is the exception to that. It's by far and away the longest introduction that Paul gives to a letter, and the most detailed if you're a, a music fan like myself, uh, you, and even just anyway, you might be aware that there's, there's some albums that are good, there's some that are not so good, and there's some that are considered as being classic sort of albums that have changed something about music. They do something so fundamentally different, so significant, that they shape everything that comes thereafter it. And here are just a few. Chuck Berry here, his record Maybelline in 1955 was Elvis Presley before Elvis Presley was a thing. Or Robert Johnson here, the blues singer. His album King of the Delta Blues in 1961 inspired every single blues artist and British rock group that came thereafter them. Or perhaps... The Beatles, Sgt. Peppers, regularly cited from artists from Sting to U2 to Kurt Cobain as being a huge influence upon their music. Or maybe Aretha Franklin, I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, 1967, an album that paved the way for Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Beyonce, every other strong female sort of lead singer really finds inspiration from Aretha whether they know it or not. Well, Romans is a book that changed the world. Paul, in this book, maybe alone and maybe above all his others, essentially invents a field of thought of Christian theology that really does not exist before him. It doesn't exist in the world either. 
because in a pagan world in which the gods, the mythologies are just perpetuated through stories, there is no sort of concept and an idea of actually critically thinking and reflecting upon the deity and that actually shaping your life. The world is happy to live with this idea of a compartmentalized and divided world in which I can believe one set of things, I can do another set of things, and I can love a totally different set of things here. And Paul completely destroys that by creating Christian theology, saying, no, actually, all of your life, all of your desires and motivations and loves can come out of the gospel. The gospel shapes everything for you. So there's actually a huge part of to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple, is to be involved in Christian theology, to be asking four simple questions. Who is God? What's God done because of who he is? Who am I because of what God has done? And how do I live in light of who he's made me to be? And further, this book alone was the cause of the conversion of three incredibly significant figures through church history, and no doubt many others we don't know of, but let me pick out three for you in three dates. 386 AD, Augustine of Hippo reads, oh, in fact, he, he hears uh, a class of school children walking through a garden as he's sat in the garden, he's wrestling with his life. He's an incredibly intelligent and erudite man, great communicator, he teaches literature and, and law, and he's a playboy and his life is is in complete disarray and he's in a moment of crisis of wondering what do I do of feeling guilty and knowing that his life is wrong he sits there in this garden and he hears this uh, school of children come out saying take up and read take up and read he enters back into his room where Romans lays open he turns to it and it speaks to him as if it's God himself. He writes of it, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with a burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted it solely as a divine command to me to open the book and to read the first chapter I might find. So I hurried back to the place where I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. It came from Romans 13. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. About 1,200 years later, Martin Luther sat in Germany, has a similar struggle in his own life, and turns to the book of Romans. He's struggled in anxiety and angst for months and years as he's wrestled with this idea of, uh, of what does it look like and mean to be accepted by God? And he's felt no relief as the church has taught that, well, follow the rites of the church. Come to church, do, do the things they said, follow the sacraments and you will be righteous. But he knows in his heart, but I'm not. And even as I step out of confession, I feel that 
I still know that I'm not righteous. And I, I actually wonder if I even meant it when I confessed my sins. So he turns to a passage in Romans 1. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. He's thinking about the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Augustine's conversion and writings fueled the Protestant Reformation of around about 1,200 years after it. He's probably the most significant theologian that there was pre the Reformation. There's no surprise that then for Luther and for Calvin and for others, they were picking up the works of Augustine and picking up the book of Romans. And it was that that drove them to seeing the discrepancies between the church that they experienced there and the theology that filled it and the word of God in the gospel. And it changed the world, not just religiously, but culturally and politically too. And John Wesley too is another one famously converted reading this book. So this is a book that has changed the world. But in order, as we set out on this voyage through Romans to be able to go in the right direction, we need to ask, what is Romans? Martin Luther, the reformer, so shaped by that book, he speaks of it here. We find in this letter, then, the richest possible teaching about what a Christian should know. The meaning of law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, justice, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. We learn how we are to act toward everyone, toward the virtuous and sinful, toward the strong and the weak, friend and foe, and toward ourselves. Paul bases everything firmly on scripture and proves his points with examples from his own experience and from the prophets so that nothing more could be desired. Therefore, it seems that St. Paul, in writing this letter, wanted to compose a summary of the whole Christian and evangelical teaching, which would also be an introduction to the whole Old Testament. Without doubt, whoever takes this letter to heart possesses the light and power of the Old Testament Therefore, each and every Christian should make this letter the habitual and constant object of his study. God grant us his grace to do so. And Romans is all of that, as Luther says, but it's also a letter. It's a letter to a particular group of people for a particular reason. And there's three simple causes for this letter. Firstly, to establish and strengthen the churches in a key city. Paul tells us this in Romans 1 verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And he reminds us again at the end of the letter too. So firstly, it's to strengthen and establish the churches in this city. Secondly, it is to gain support for his coming mission trip to Spain. He tells us in chapter 15, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. But thirdly, it's written to unite a church that faces the threat of fracture. The churches in Rome were founded by faithful converts who were there at Pentecost. You can read about them in Acts chapter 2, that there's uh, 
faithful Jewish people who come up to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They then actually hear the gospel. They hear Peter's preaching. They're converted and they go back home. They plant churches there. But the Jews are expelled from Rome somewhere between 41 and 53 AD by the Emperor Claudius. And so the church, which has begun with Jewish believers in a very sort of Jewish flavor, has now changed. And the Gentile converts who had come along along the way are now the ones who are responsible for leading the church and taking it forwards. And then by the time this letter is written, 57 AD, Claudius has died in 54, and so Jews have found it safe now to sort of make their way back to Rome. Now the church faces a dilemma. Because now how does it find a way forward when now those Jewish believers are back, but now they're back, but they're not in charge. And they have to accept a little bit that things have changed. Things look a little bit different. And how do these two different groups find a way in Christ to find a way forward together? So Paul has this in mind, I think. And that's why we get such detailed sort of stuff about that whole relationship later on. We find in this letter here, that the freedom from the guilt of sin, salvation from God's judgment, and behavior corrected, and the church being held together, all of these different sort of concerns, all happen by us being transformed by the renewal of our mind, as Paul says in chapter 12, verse 2. The reflecting on the gospel, reflecting on who God is and what he has done, does all of those things. All of those practical concerns come together when we reflect upon God in the gospel. And so as we run through this series here, I've just put a short outline uh, of what we'll look at up for you. And in a way, it's a little collection of smaller series that these first two weeks will think about the question of what is the gospel? That's what Paul will centrally sort of tell us. And then he'll tell us the bad news just how people have messed things up before he gives us the good news, how God makes you right. And then we'll see what it looks like to actually live in the freedom that God gives and how life with God is better, life in the Spirit. And then we'll see how God is sovereign, how actually God does all of this. God gets it done. And then we'll see what the life of faith looks like. And Paul will turn from that sort of uh, theoretical sort of stuff to say, well, here's how it affects your day-to-day life together. Here's how it reshapes your life before giving us that final word in chapter 16. And this morning we'll consider, as Paul's answering this question, what is the gospel? The purpose of the gospel. So one last Sort of bit just to give you a bit of context to the letter, aside from what we've said already, that the setting here, Paul writes this letter towards the end of his third missionary journey. Uh, Luke tells us in Acts that he spends three months layover in Corinth uh, between uh, trips, and it's believed that Paul writes this letter from Corinth to Rome in that moment. And Paul, in his mind, is looking in the immediate future to make his way towards Jerusalem. And I think you'll see on the map behind there that there's a sort of 
long-winded journey that goes back where he makes all these stop-off points through these different cities because Paul is raising a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. They've uh, undergone a severe famine. And one of the ways that Paul wants to sort of, again, one of the dynamics of the letter is this idea of under the gospel in Christ, it brings together both those who uh, become Christians but have had a Jewish background and those who've come to Christ and had no sort of religious background, come from sort of the pagan world, and bringing them together. And one of Paul's ideas to do that is, why don't I raise a collection from all the Gentile churches to show our shared sort of brotherhood, sisterhood, our familyhood together, that it will show our commitment and our love for the believers up there in Jerusalem. And so Paul makes it his plan to go through these churches, raising this gift, and then hopes to make his way back westwards towards Spain with Rome as a stop-off point. And so he hopes that by writing to people that by and large he's not met personally yet, but knows of through others, that he'll be able to bless them and encourage them and gain support for that missionary trip. He says his goal and focus has been to preach Christ where his name isn't known. And so he sees at this point, the next pioneer and frontier for me is Spain. So let's come to the letter then, shall we? And this morning, we'll just think of these three short sections here. Firstly, the gospel messenger, the gospel message, and the gospel people. Firstly, Paul introduces himself here and I wonder sort of if you ever have to sort of think I many for me many of the little things in life are the things that cause me the most anxiety uh, and stress and one of them is you know that stupid thing of how do you introduce yourself in a new crowd Uh, you know I find myself so sort of overthinking that Uh, I found some funny uh, business card fails here of people perhaps thinking just a little too much or maybe not enough about how they would introduce themselves. You've got here a a stretchy um, business card. You can only read when you sort of actually have a full-on workout to read it. Or there's the Swiss Army Knife business card, which I'm sure in the guy's head, seemed really clever, this would really showcase my skills in graphic design, but is just not readable, not very sensible. Or actually my favorite is this next one, it's the strap line at the bottom, if you can read it there. He says, uh, his company is, has got the initials there, B-A-D. He says, when good is not good enough, call bad. <laughs> or perhaps they're just sort of uh, word art disaster with his everything everywhere on this final one. But how do you introduce yourself? Sometimes that could be a stressful and a worrying thing, can't it? And there's some significant things in how Paul introduces himself here. Even in that first word... Paul is the one writing this letter. Paul is our author. And everything else in this book, by the way, is consistent with this genuinely being a Pauline epistle. But something is said to us of the power of the gospel in that Paul is our author. That God has overcome Paul's opposition. Paul is a famous persecutor of the church, a well-respected, well-renowned young rabbi who is respected. He's there at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, holding the coats of the older men. He's there being sort of trained up. He's there actually taking the initiative of then asking for his superiors to be able to have permission to go on raids through the cities, through synagogues, uh, getting rid of anybody who is calling on the name of Jesus causing such fear that uh, all the believers are, are worried to have anything to do with him. And even when he's converted, are not sure. Is this Paul just going undercover? Is he still out to get us? And yet, 
Paul is our author. Paul himself has experienced the transformation of the gospel. He introduces himself here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And in fact, the word isn't strong enough in the English. In the, in the Greek, the word there is bondservant. And it means one who is owned by another. It means, really, slave. It's the word that Paul most frequently uses of himself and most frequently uses of Christian ministry. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And there's two elements in that statement that, and, and why he uses that word. of He's a slave, he's one owned by another and his master is Christ Jesus. He introduces himself, he introduces his master and Christ there is a title, it's not a name. It's not a forename or a surname of Jesus, it's a title that Paul will go into in more detail in a little bit. But the gospel lays waste to the sort of pretension and pomposity and arrogance of society, which is all about wanting to have the grandest introduction, the most titles, the most letters after your name. Paul is happy to be simply known as a slave. A servant of Christ Jesus called, he says, to be an apostle, to be a messenger, to be a delegate, an ambassador. And that's a better sense of it because he's not just someone with a message. He's someone representing God in that way, in the way that a political sort of ambassador represents a country in another country. They don't just represent the interests of the country. They actually are there as as a physical, personal, relational representative of that nation summoned, called to this work. But his service, his work is specific. He's set apart for the gospel of God. And so Paul actually has given us a rather traditional introduction here. He's introduced himself, his master, Jesus, his office, that is, he is a messenger, an apostle, and thirdly, his purpose, his intent, that is, he's set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's life is not about building his own name, but proclaiming God's name. This messenger is firstly surprising. It's Paul, of all people. Secondly, this messenger is submissive. He declares himself to be a slave. Thirdly, he's summoned to this task. He's called to it. But fourthly, we can see he's one who is steadfast. He's focused. And set apart for the gospel. Well, there's our messenger then. Well, what about the message? And Paul gives a rather unusual now introduction in that he spells out in quite specific detail the nature of the gospel. And this makes sense in the context that although Paul clearly knows many of the people in many of the different house churches in Rome... He, he hasn't personally been there to meet them yet. He tells us at the beginning, in a few verses ahead, that many times he's wanted to go there, but to this point has been hindered. So, to a group of people who haven't yet sort of met him, by and large, face to face, it would make sense for Paul to spell out his gospel message for them, so they can know something about him. And so he gives us a summary here of the nature and purpose of the gospel, which he's going to expand on here with eight themes. Look at this in verses 2 to 6. There, Firstly, in verse 2, we see that the gospel is an old message. 
The message of the gospel is in continuity with the Old Testament scriptures. That's important. Because for many people, the claim was that the gospel was distorting and walking away from the Old Testament scriptures. Paul wants to make the opposite point. No, no, this was the message from the very beginning. If you could have read it properly, Jesus said the same thing. He says to the Pharisees, isn't this your problem that if you read Moses and believed him, you would have believed in me because he spoke of me. Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples after the resurrection starts from the Old Testament from the beginning and runs through all of the scriptures with them showing where he was. The gospel is an old message and that's important. It's a gospel which he promised beforehand. And the, the, the way that we would put it there in English from the Greek really it would be more like uh, from long ago or from of old. That sort of story language, really from the very beginning and always. This has been the message. He's promised it beforehand. This new work that has come in Christ is in keeping with his long-given promises, which he's promised beforehand, he tells us, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And this is shorthand for Paul and the other New Testament authors of saying all of the Hebrew Old Testament. All of the Old Testament points to him and is about him. And the thing that Paul wants them to know right from the off is that the gospel of Christ does not contradict the Old Testament. It's not a departure from it. It was the natural fulfillment. Again, Jesus will say of himself, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. It was always pointed to me. This is not once it was all about just trying to meet the law and then you're righteous if you can do that and God will forgive you as if you could. You couldn't have. No, he's saying, I am what it was always pointing to. It was always supposed to point you to a point of saying, I can't keep up with that. Every time I think I can get somewhere near it, I realize that the heart of this law goes so much further. Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said that to commit adultery is wrong. I'm telling you even to look in the wrong way. You've already done it. You've heard that it's wrong to murder. I'm telling you, you've done it in your heart. It's as good as you've done it. If you thought that you could keep it, if you thought that was the apex, no, no. You've just not read it. It was always pointing to your need of me. The gospel is an old message. It doesn't contradict the Old Testament. Augustine will say of it that, the grace of the gospel hid itself under a veil in the Old Testament. It's there, but you have to work sometimes to find it. You have to think. You have to look carefully. You have to peel some layers back. But it's revealed in the New Testament. So Paul wants to say, firstly, the gospel is an old message. Secondly, he wants to tell us the gospel is all about Jesus. Look at verse 3 there. The message of the gospel is concerned with and revealed in Jesus. And there's two points specifically he wants to make about Jesus here. That Jesus is God's son and he's David's relative. He's God and he's man. The fancy word for it is there's a hypostatic union. There's a union of both deity, divinity, Godhood and humanity. 
It's a gospel concerning his, that is God's, son. It's concerned with Jesus, who's explicitly claimed to be God's son. Not just good, but God. And we see that through the gospels too. Paul's not doing something that the gospel writers don't also do a few years after this letter is received. God declares Jesus to be the son of God. We see that at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist claims Jesus is God. I've seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. Mark claims in the very first verse of his gospel that Jesus is the son of God. He doesn't really give a genealogy. He doesn't give a family tree because his point is to want to just say he's the son of God. And Jesus numerous times himself claims that he is the son of God. Here is just one example. After he's accused of breaking the Sabbath in John 5, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. And John tells us, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, making himself God's heir at his right hand, the one who is to inherit everything that God the Father has. It's concerning God's son, but he's also descended from David according to the flesh. That is, you know, as far as his earthly ancestry goes, he can line up his ancestors back to David, which is significant because it means that he can fulfill the promise of eternal king forever from David's line. There are two things that really say the same thing. That on the one hand, he is the fulfillment of this promise to David of a righteous, good king forever who leads God's people into prosperity and to peace. And also the son of God who is the heir of all things to come, who is the one to take the throne and to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about Jesus. But thirdly, we see the gospel provides a saviour at verse 3 there the message of the gospel reveals jesus the son of god and the messiah this combination of being both the son of god and the son of david is crucial because it's telling us that jesus is given as a savior he's come as uh, the god sent spirit filled messiah who would save his people from sin that they can't save themselves from this is significant Paul's gospel here doesn't offer self-help. It doesn't offer you a philosophy. It doesn't offer you primarily a moral code. It doesn't offer you a life coach. It gives you a savior to die for your sins. The gospel will make clear, and Paul will hammer this home over the next couple of chapters, and you'll feel it, and you'll desperately hope for the moment at which the good news will finally come when we're in it. But the gospel makes clear that nothing less will do. The only thing that can possibly help you and I is that we have a saviour who will die for us. The gospel is an old message. The gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel provides a saviour. The gospel is proven by the resurrection. Look at verse 4. The message of the gospel is validated by Jesus' resurrection. And he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection. 
He's more than just a human Messiah. He doesn't become God. He always was and is God. But he's declared to be God by his resurrection. He is the Son of God in power here. And it's the resurrection that declares that. It's the resurrection that proves the legitimacy of the gospel, that he really does walk out of that tomb at the end of three days. That really, really matters. Jesus can save from sin because he rose again. And the fact he rose again proves that his offering for sin himself was accepted because he was perfectly righteous. It's an old message. It's all about Jesus provides a savior it's proven by the resurrection and it offers grace and requires apostleship the gospel grants us the gift of salvation and a calling to bear witness we have received verse 5 he tells us here we've taken hold of is is the word there we've grabbed hold of we've grasped grace the Lord's favor, as opposed to and in contrast to his judgment that we deserve to face. So there's a paradox here. Because on the one hand, it's something that's given by God. It's something that's a gift. It's something that you cannot earn. You cannot do anything to grasp hold of and attain. And yet, it's something that we lay hold of simultaneously. We've received grace and apostleship. And the way there is that sending away. We receive this gift of grace with God, but we're also sent out. Just as Paul has said of himself that he's an apostle. We're all sent out. It's like parenting. That actually that love of parenting, caring and nurturing for your children, it's all really geared up to sending them out one day as adults into the world. We're all sent. It offers grace and apostleship. And sixthly, the gospel produces obedience. Look at verse 5 there still. The gospel produces obedience, which is faith, and faith that is obedient. The gospel produces obedience, which is faith, and a faith that is obedient he says that he does this here to bring about the obedience of faith what does paul mean by that what does that obedience look like the thing that paul is saying and it will become clear over the course of the letter is that obedience is faith faith is obedience he he's not primarily saying to bring about faith that results in obedience though that is true and that is what happens what he's saying is that the act of obedience the measure the benchmark the only one is faith is faith the act of obedience is not to do anything other than to believe to obey to receive god's grace to trust in faith that Christ has done it all. The gospel produces a faith in God, which is the obedience that he seeks. Sin always begins with not acknowledging God. 
manifests in actions, but it always, always begins with not acknowledging God. That is why you can be just as sinful, you can be just as wrong in doing the right thing. Have you noticed that? You can do something, but actually in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it can be bad. Because sin is always really about not acknowledging God. Why you can sin just as much in respectable things as you can in more obvious sins. Spurgeon puts it about this here. These good works must be in the Christian. They are not the root, but the fruit of his salvation. They are not the way of the believer's salvation. It's not the way to be saved. They are his walk in the way of salvation. When there is a healthy life in a tree, the tree will bear fruit according to its kind. The gospel produces obedience. Seventh, the gospel is global. Again, look at verse five there. The gospel will bring God's glory to all peoples in all places. To bring about the obedience of faith, we're told, for the sake of his name among all the nations. And the word there is ethnasin. It's uh, people groups, races, cultures. For the sake of his name amongst all peoples. God's concern here. And don't miss that. The beginning of that sentence. There's an important thing about it being global. But what adds to it more is, is the specific intent of why God does all of this. For the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. God's concern is for his glory and name to be upheld in all the earth. That motivates him. Therefore, anything less than a global recognition, a global glorying in his name, is not right for a glorious God like him. So we can say, three things here just about this sentence here that he does this for the sake of his name among all nations three quite important things here firstly that the gospel is not and has never been rooted in one culture it has never been sometimes the accusation is in the world that you know uh, christianity is a white western religion and it ought not to be involved in other places in the world because there is an arrogance to coming to other places and telling them that you ought to now follow our culture part of that is true if the gospel comes along with other things that are just cultural cutlery uh, church buildings in a specific style specific kinds of dress as it did at times which is wrong that part is wrong but the idea that you cannot proselytize, that you cannot make converts to the gospel because it's rooted in one ethnic culture is not true. And it testifies to itself that it is not rooted in any one ethnic culture. But secondly, the gospel is always globally concerned. It is always interested in actually expanding across all the face of the earth. And that thirdly, the gospel does seek quite explicitly, to convert people to it. This is all done for the sake of his name among all the nations. The gospel is an old message. It is all about Jesus. 
It provides a saviour. It's proven by the resurrection. It offers grace and calls for apostleship. It produces obedience. It's global. And then lastly, it's imminent. The gospel calls you and I right here and now to respond in the obedience of faith. He tells them here, verse 6, that this includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. They too, these Roman believers, have become part of this global people of God. And they're called to belong to Jesus. The words there in the Greek is kletoi. And the root at the beginning there, clay, is part of the same root of the word ecclesia, which is the word that's used for church. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Just as the church as a whole is a collection of, and the word there for church means the called out ones. The ones who are called to gather together. God calls out his people. God reaches out through the gospel message to the people he's calling out to. And he reaches out, not just to Romans here, not just all across the globe, but to you right here. Paul has started by giving us this sort of clear idea of his gospel message. And so now from chapters 2 to 12, uh, he's going to further dissect that in, in great detail for us. But after this sort of important and clarifying interlude, uh, there will be a common theme through Romans where Paul will do that. That's part of how he thinks sort of out loud and writes for us. Paul now returns finally in this last verse to greet them. And so we see the gospel people here in verse 7. Lastly, Paul turns here to the gospel people uh, to whom this letter is written, the churches throughout Rome. And this letter is written as a circular to go throughout Rome because there is no one single sort of Roman church. And you sort of see that by the greetings at the end in chapter 16, that there's a whole range of different churches meeting in different people's homes. And so Paul expects that this letter will circulate throughout the city, throughout the different Christian communities there. But we see something about these people here. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. These people have been called by God. The gospel is always reaching out to the people right in front of it. And it reaches out to you and I now as we hear it. These are people who firstly are loved by God. To be a believer is to be bestowed and lavished with the love of God over us and in our lives. God loves these people. And then secondly, we see they specifically have been called to be saints. To be holy, to be set apart for God for good use. To be a believer is to be a saint. And the only test here is belief that God has called you. You know, in the Catholic Church, there's extensive sort of tests in order to become a saint. Firstly, to be dead for five years, usually. Secondly, that your whole life is investigated for its performance. Did you do well enough at the end of it? Thirdly, can you prove from your sort of life's work that you lived a life of heroic virtue? Fourthly, you have to have at least one miracle verified, performed in your name. And then fifthly, you need that to be repeated, probably at least once more. But for Paul here, these Roman believers are saints simply because they believe. 
They're called out by God himself. They're loved by him. They're known by him. And so we this morning too, no matter how we may feel about our level of performance, we might be able to quite accurately say, I'm not sure if I've quite met the benchmark of heroic virtue. I'm not sure if my last seven days have quite displayed heroic virtue. They might not have displayed the sort of uh, uh, disorderliness of Augustine. Perhaps not. I hope not. (laughs) Thank goodness. But it might not quite have met the measure of heroic virtue. doesn't matter if you're known and you're called by God you're a saint and so Paul lastly greets him here grace to you and peace from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ and of all else we'll see to all the great depth of thought and reflection and meditation and uh, uh, an examination of ourselves through this letter this letter offers as the gospel always does at the end of it is grace, peace. How to know God for who he is. How to know who you really are. How to know peace in that conflict and turmoil that we read Augustine experiencing. And Luther too. And countless millions of others. Grace and peace. And so we come back, began by thinking about those classic albums. What was it that was so powerful about them? But more importantly, what is so powerful about this letter that changed the world and continues to do so? And will do again and confronts the message of the culture around us. And the things that we believe in our heart. Well, it's the power of this gospel that Paul has begun to trace out for us, it's this message that had the power to change the world. It's this message that causes the Thessalonians to say, as the apostles arrive there in Acts 17, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. It's a message that is all about how God saves the world and a message through which He saves the world, starting with you and with me. Why don't we pray? And then in a few moments, what we're going to do is way of response. We've heard it there this morning that the only real response, an appropriate one that you can give and should give and that God calls for is obedience of faith. And so we're going to tangibly, physically do that together by sharing in the Lord's Supper. It's a small, symbolic, tangible way of really believing all that Jesus has done and receiving what the apostles left us off with there, grace and peace from God. That's what the gospel offers us, each one of us, again this morning. In a world of distraction and discontentment, dissatisfaction, disorder, disease, division, disaster, discrimination and disillusionment, to a world that's reeling from the effects of sin, God offers grace and peace through Christ to set us right. One of the ways we tangibly lay hold of this 
Pastor said that we lay hold of grace is through eating and drinking these symbols in faith. But before we do this, let's just briefly take chance to confess together our sin, our need of Christ's atoning blood. So I'll pray for us. Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, we acknowledge before your holy majesty that we are poor sinners, conceived and born in guilt and in corruption, prone to do evil, unable of our own power to do good. Because of our sin, we endlessly violate your holy commandments. But, O oh Lord, with heartfelt sorrow, we repent and turn away from all our offences. We condemn ourselves in our evil ways, and with true sorrow, asking that your grace will relieve our distress. Have compassion on us, most gracious God, Father of mercies, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and in removing our guilt, also grant us daily increase of the grace of your Holy Spirit, and produce in us the fruits of holiness and of righteousness pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then as we, in a few moments, just come to sharing this together, listen to these words from the Augsburg Confession. You know, this is important that as we come to this, we don't come to this assuming that we know what it's doing. Assuming that our hearts are still in the right place of knowing and understanding and perceiving what God is offering us this morning through these simple elements. It tells us, communion has been instituted that faith in them in which we use the sacraments, may remember what benefits it receiveth by Christ, and that it may raise and comfort the fearful conscience. You may this morning be fearfully aware of your failings. And so the point, or one of them, of this meal is to raise you and to comfort you. For this is to remember Christ, we're told, to wit, to remember his benefits, and to feel and to perceive that they be indeed imparted unto us. And the hope and the prayer in these moments is that through this small symbolic action, 